0: This uh, past Friday, I had a tree surgeon out to my house. We've got uh, several monster trees, if you've, if we haven't got to have you over to our house, hopefully we will one day, and you can see what's left of them after he's done. But um, we have a sycamore that's gone hollow, we've got to have it out, it's monster tree. But I also have 10, count them 10, last measure was 98 feet tall pine trees, the direct TV guys had to measure them to figure out how to aim the dish and um, he measured them at 98 feet three years ago so who knows what they are now but um, so while the guy's coming out of course you know it's horribly expensive all, the, all that equipment out there I wanted them to trim those there's a couple of them that we're probably going to have taken down so my whole thing I brought in a tree surgeon to be the expert because I don't I mean it's a pine tree I'm, I'm good at that point um, what do we do with these things? How do we make sure they're safe? All that sort of stuff for the kids. So, get this guy out here. He's an expert, supposedly, on trees. And um, I, I felt like it was getting a little sketchy when he kept going up to the trees and. What, what are you doing? And I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like knocking them. See? I mean, he was patting the trees. I, I, I got worried. He's not coming to our house, by the way. Get somebody else. Um, but. What I wanted him to do was tell me this pine tree's bad and this one's doing pretty good, or we need to trim these, or man, they're just all bad. When you take, I needed that information so I could make a good decision. I'm not an expert on trees. What he started doing was, well, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I don't really like to come to somebody's house and tell them, you know, that they ought to cut a tree down, and I'm like, buddy. I brought you here to tell me what trees to cut down. Tell me what trees to cut down. And he was so scared to tell me what he really thought. And um, yeah, anyway, we're not used to him. So um, if you need somebody, Gary Casman has a great guy. Uh, we're going with that guy. But it's the same way. If you go to the doctor and you've got something wrong with you, you don't want the doctor to tell you you're Okay. You want the doctor to say, here's what's wrong, and here's what you need to do about it. It's funny. We want that with a doctor. We definitely want that with a tree surgeon, right? You know, somebody coming to cut tree. You want that with the repairman. You don't want the guy to come and fix your plumbing to say, I think it's pretty good. And then the pipe explode the next day. You want to know the reality of the situation. But strangely enough, when the Bible... Get serious about our situation, almost always our gut reaction is, well, that's not really how it is for me. That, that doesn't actually apply to me. Yeah, I know, some, some of those folks, say, but I'm not like that. And the first three verses of this passage in Ephesians 2 are some of those hard pills to swallow. Paul's not gentle. He does not sugarcoat it. This is not the spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. He just gives it to us. But what I want us to do is open our scriptures. If if you have a Bible, please do open it. If you don't, um, you can grab one of those black Bibles. It's on page 976. We're going to open to Ephesians chapter 2. Chapter numbers are the big numbers. Verse numbers are the little one. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go 1 through 7 today. And this is actually one gigantic long Seven-verse-long sentence. And the first three verses are kind of the clause. They're, they're like the prerequisite to the sentence. They're what you have to know for the rest of it to make sense. So, so as we come into this, I want us to hear the bag diagnosis. I want us to actually listen Because if we miss the diagnosis, we're not going to understand the cure. Nobody would want chemotherapy if they didn't know how bad cancer was, right? We won't receive the good, gracious, freeing, joyful cure if we don't realize we're sick. As the Bible says here, We're not just sick, it's too late, we're dead. That's the actual diagnosis. But but please do stick with me, and we're going to get to verse 4 where it says, but God has saved us, He's made us alive. But we need to see what has He actually done, because you'll realize how significant it is once you realize our current state. So Ephesians chapter 2, read read verses 1 through 3 again with me. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. And the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This verse, these three verses here, it diagnoses who we are. And so I I want you to get this, and then we're going to see what God does about it. So, the first point there in your uh, worship guide, if you want to take notes as you walk along, Uh, as we work along here, is you were really dead. Some old movie talks about different levels of dead. According to the Bible, let me tell you, you're really dead. And the Bible spells out, Paul kind of walks us down this road of what it means. And the first thing he says is your sins and trespasses. You were a sinner. And that, that word's almost become a dirty word in some circles, but the Bible says you were a sinner and a trespasser. And those are two words the Bible uses all through the New and Old Testament for sin. That, that word sin, as Romans 3, 23 kind of paints it out in a picture, it's, it's the idea of falling short. The scripture there says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and I, uh, last time I preached, a couple weeks ago, told you all the story that I've, I've started doing some bow hunting, and I heard lots of comments on that, so I got another one for you, not quite as glorious, unfortunately. One of the things when you're shooting that kind of a bow, there's 60 pounds of pressure there. You can't hold that with your fingers, it'll tear through your fingers, so you have to use a release, and it, it's basically, you hit the button, bang, the arrow goes, so I was kind of getting used to this thing. I, I got a new one that's supposed to be more accurate. It's, it's really the right way to do it. And, and I'm shooting, and I mostly hit the target. I, it's rare I'll miss my you know, little big block of target. I may not hit the bullseye every time, but I'm going to get it on this you know, like four-foot stop to stop that arrow. But I pulled back, getting used to this thing, that release under that 60 pounds of pressure came flying out of my hand before I'd gotten all the way back. Smacked the bow, had to have the whole thing rebuild. It was It was lovely. My wife was ready to beat me over the head after spending money on the bow, you know. And that arrow, it was hilarious because I watched it just, bonk. It's not that I didn't hit the bullseye. I didn't hit the target. It didn't get there. Like it didn't have the oomph to make it all the way to the target because everything went wrong. and Strings came off the bow, all that sort of stuff. That's how scripture describes our sin. When the word sin comes up, that's the word picture you need to get. It's not that we were aiming for the bullseye and we hit a little left, or a little right, or a little up, or a little down. We didn't make it to the target. It just flopped. And then the Bible uses this word trespass. And, and, I mean, we know what trespassing is. 1 John 3, 4 describes it even a little more clearly. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So if you're that one, you you practice sinning and and your arrows are dropping, we're not even hitting the target, you're also practicing lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, 1 John says. And so we are breaking God's law. We all know there's consequences to breaking the law. If you speed, you're eventually going to get a ticket. If you run the red light, you're either going to get yourself hurt or you're going to get a ticket. If you steal things, you're going to go to jail eventually. We break God's law. Now, most of us in here, I'm just presuming by the fact that you're here today, you're you're probably recognizing that there's at least a problem with us. You would, I would hope, go as far with me to say as we have sinned, right? I I, I mean, that's a presumption, and I know if you're not in there, please forgive me for making that presumption upon you. But we'll admit we sin, but we're kind of hesitant to draw the line at how much we sin. In our own brains, there's that guy or that lady out there. Yeah, they're the really bad one. Because, you know, we sin. Yeah, we sin. But then there's those folks. (laughs) They really sin. But look what Paul does here. Chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked. That's... A fancy Bible way of saying this is, this is the path you were taking. It's not just that you trespassed or you sinned once. You walked in it. It was a lifestyle for you. So get the picture here. Paul's not just saying you sinned. He's saying you sinned a lot. He's saying that's how you lived. Sin is the look or the character of our gate like you can tell you know there's some people who have a distinctive walk you know maybe they're they're a little hunched over or maybe they just kind of pop or maybe they're really bright eye the character of our walk used to be sin that's not a pretty way of saying it right it's not just a little sin it's a lot of sin. So, so even though, even if you would admit you sin, and maybe you might recognize we sinned a lot, but very few of us would see and admit that sins actually affected us. It's made a change on our very being. The reason we have problems is those people or that circumstance. None of us want to recognize us that sin has conformed us. Just like my kids playing with Play-Doh, that's one of their favorites. Just like they mold it into shapes. Sin has molded you to the shape of this world. You've been distorted from who you're supposed to be. Look, look back there. We're going to go back 400 times to this text because I want us to just track with us. In which you once walked following the course of this world. That's how sin affects us. But, but if you were willing to admit your sin, maybe even that you sinned a lot. You even got to the place of confessing that sin has changed you for the worse. None of us would ever admit to where Paul says we've all gone. The Bible says that because you sinned, because you've sinned a lot, because of where that sin took you and what sin made you, the Bible declares that Satan used to be your king. Now, just for subtleties here, Paul, Paul doesn't get that. Like, it's not gentle, hey, let me, you know, sometimes you kind of have this little problem. He's like, no, you like Satan. That's who you used to be. He's your bud. He's your hero. That's not how we like to think of ourselves, is it? I I mean, the only people who like Satan are those weird, you know, like way off on the fringe, crazy people. But Paul here is saying, you're following satan satan is your prince the prince of the power of the air the prince that's that's in this spirit not everyday good americans like you and i do that thing but paul says oh yes we did to quote ravi zacharias he he put it like this sin takes you farther than you want to go It keeps you longer than you want to stay, and it costs you more than you want to pay. And let me add to that, paraphrasing, it puts you under a king you don't want to follow. Satan is the prince of those who are under this air we breathe, and those who disobey God's law. Like Columbo or Obi-Wan said, that's his speciality. He knows how to use us his evil ends. The hard truth is that we in our sin get twisted to a point. We want to follow Satan. That's not where we want to be, is it? That's not where we want to admit that we are, but this is where Paul starts us. Now, he kind of turns it from where we've gone to the depths to which we've plumbed to what is the significance of this? Why did we go there? How could sin be that bad that it'd take us there? And here's what he says. He says, sin is a nature that we've inherited. Paul gets to the theological heart of the issue. We are born with a nature of sin from Adam we inherited it. It's, it's a bent towards sin. It's the guilt of rebellion against God that has been passed on to all humankind since the very first man and woman said, no, God, we don't want your way. I, I mean, catch, catch your minds back to the garden. Even if you've not been in church, I'm going to guess you've heard the story. Adam and Eve, they're commanded not to eat a certain fruit. The serpent appears to them. Prince of the Power of the Air, same guy, right? It Says, did God really say that? Oh, you won't die if you eat that thing. And what do Adam and Eve choose to do? They eat. But, but think of what they're doing in that eating. They're disobeying God. They're breaking God's law, the trespass, right? They're falling short of God's righteous requirement. But who are they choosing to believe over God? Satan. It's been the same from the very beginning. The reality is our heart is bent so bad we like Satan. That's not healthy, right? This is not a good thing. So that nature gets inherited to us. It's kind of like the Constitution of the United States, all right? I want you to think back history lessons. I know I'm torturing some of you. Some of you are on spring break. That's real torture, talking about history and spring break. But the Constitution of the United States was written in New York City, not Washington yet. It was voted on by Congress and approved as the Constitution of the United States, but it did not go into effect yet There was one more step. Y'all remember what it was? It had to go out to the states, and the states, by popular vote, ratified the Constitution. It was our Constitution. But then every state put their stamp on and said, yep, that's us, we're in it. Sin has been passed down from Adam to the next, to the next, to Noah, and on through and on through, all the way until it gets to us. And so we have this sin nature. And we might be able to blame someone if we had this sin nature that came from Adam and it wasn't us. But we go and put our big old stamp and say, yep, I like it. And we run down that road of sin ourselves. So it's not just something from the outside in. It's something from the inside that's coming out. So the reality is where Paul leaves us there in verse 3. And we're by nature children of wrath. God's just, righteous anger. We made Cassius and Brutus, Judas Iscariot, Benedict Arnold, Ezra Pound, and the worst traitor deserving the death sentence. We leave them looking pretty good. We didn't betray a country. We betrayed the Creator. Wrath is where our relationship with God brings. But after that darkness, after that weight, after that accusation and smacking around with the two by four, look where Paul goes. He doesn't want us to stay there. So don't get discouraged. Don't feel this until you read verse 4. And it says, as Christy read so well and prayed so well, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, not giving us the punishment we deserve, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead. Not sick, but dead. In our transpasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's good news, folks. God makes dead people alive. I mean, think about this. And our brains get these, like, false divisions in them sometimes. What do we celebrate at Easter? Resurrection. And then what do we do two weeks later when we did that one sin again? Oh, God can't save a guy like me. And those voices come into our heads over and over and over. I've gone too far. I've done too much wrong. But God says, I'm not here because you're sick and need a little help. You don't need a booster shot. If we get the vaccine going for COVID and all that, we're not going to give it to the dead people, right? It doesn't help. Joe's rubbing his shoulder. Apparently I struck a nerve there. All right. (laughs) We don't give vaccines to dead people. We don't give medicine to dead people. We bury dead people. The only thing that can help you and by God's grace and to His praise, most of you, my brothers and sisters in here, know this truth and, and not this guy who used to be dead or this lady who used to be dead, but you have been made alive. That's good news. You see, we were really dead. But your next point there in the bulletin is God really saves. He does three things for you according to this verse. God raised you from the dead. This is actually the main verb of this whole huge monster of a sentence, all right? Made us alive together with Christ. So catch back. Paul keeps echoing back to things that have happened in the chapter before. So I I, I want to pause just a second there. Come back with me and read Ephesians 1, verse 20. And look what God did for Christ. All right, Ephesians 1, 20. We're kind of jumping into the middle of something here. That he, this is the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above, and above, woo, I can't read today, try verse 21 again, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Now, with that in your mind, look back at what God does for us at the end of verse five. He made us alive. Remember that? He made Christ alive, raised him from the dead by the grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So there's three verbs in here that God does for us. The first one, he makes you alive. God makes you alive. Second, God raised you from the dead, saying that same thing just to pound in that emphasis. And the third thing is God seated you with Christ. So we're we're going to develop that just a little bit here and help us try to understand what God has done and why it's so radical, based on who we were. But what I want to do is kind of give a preview. I'm, this, this is this is the preview section of the movie here. Joe is coming next week to preach some of the just most glorious, faceted gems of verses this Bible ever contains. It's so good that Paul, like, jumps the gun. He, he almost gets at it, and you see there's, if you actually see, there's, like, hyphens there in your Bible. By grace, you've been saved. And, oh, wait, 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 I'm not done. He gets himself mixed up, and he comes back in verse 8, and he's going to tell us what it means to be saved by grace, and Joe's going to talk with us about that um, next week. He's going to develop the, the idea of what this means. But Paul lays the foundation here with this contrast of you were really dead and now God has made you alive. You were really dead. But the first thing God says he does is he makes you alive. I want to encourage you this morning. You're not here because you're the best. You're not here because you're the most moral. You're not here because you worked really hard and now God's happy. You're not here because you deserved it. God's grace brings messed up dead people back to life. One of the often common arguments against church and against Christ is the church is full of hypocrites. That's not true. We're way worse than hypocrites. We, we were dead people who were the worst of the worst that got raised up from life. They have no idea how bad we are or they'd say even worse things than hypocrites. We're not here because we're better than somebody else. We're here because we trust a God who can save horrible Messed up, sinful people. And not only does He save us, He does it because He loves you. So the worst thing you can imagine that you might do next week has already been taken care of. God said it 2,000 years ago. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even, in other words, when we were following Satan, He made us alive together with Christ. Christ's death on the cross was sufficient for you, sinner. It was sufficient for me, a sinner. A dead person to raise us to new life. Jeremiah says it this way, God will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel, it says it this way, all those dry bones, God will put it back together and give them flesh and then breathe His life into them to create a great army for Himself. This is what God does freely, for you. So any guilt you have, if it doesn't lead you to trusting Christ, that's a false guilt and a lie because He saves and forgives you. There's real guilt. There's honest guilt, knowing who we were, but that guilt should always drive to the next sentence, but God made you alive. So friend, if you are here and you have trusted Jesus Christ, you're alive. Second thing he says, God raised you from the dead. You're not who you used to be. You're not that person who sinned and trespassed, who walked in that, who loved following the devil. That's not you anymore. You've been made alive. That doesn't mean we won't fall, because we do it all the time. Trust me, I do all the time. But God has changed you. And let me say something to some of you who maybe are here and just just trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing. Maybe you're, you're exploring what does it mean to be spiritual. Let me tell you, from a Christian perspective, this is exactly it. We were dead, and God saves people. And so the call to you today is to trust Him, to place your faith in Jesus Christ to save you. The Bible uses the word repentance. It's turning from our ways. It's, it's loving our life, walking down that road of sin and turning to Jesus Christ. It's an exchange of kings from Satan to Christ. And you can't do that on your own, but God saves He even gives you what you need to trust Him. The old word, I I love this, way, way back there in the English language. Do you remember maybe from a funeral service where someone talks about the quick and the dead? That that phrase always confused me when I heard it several times. It's on several movies. It's in several poems. The word quick means alive. It's it's old English, and we don't use it anymore. Quick, you know, is, is... the opposite of what I am, what Joe is, right? I mean, it's, 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 you can move real fast. Think about that as an analogy. Alive. So the Bible says Christ will come to judge the quick and the dead. In other words, the alive and the dead. And what some of the old English writers, the Puritans used to write and describe is that God gives a quickening to your heart. That that conviction of sin of, oh my, I am that sinner. And I need a Savior, and I want Jesus. It's a quickening of your heart. It's a bringing to life. God makes you alive. And so my plea to you, friend, is to trust Him. And He will make you alive. He will give you the faith. He will make your heart alive so that you can trust Him. But God makes you alive. He raises you from death. And then this third thing, and I'm going to kind of hone in here a little bit. Look with me one more time, because this is is some of those words that you read. It's too good to be true. Read verse 6 with me. And raised us up with him and seated, that's past tense, catch that, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This almost seems impossible. We are so tied and and so constrained by the physical, by what our minds can conceive, by the reason that God has given us from whatever ability level that might be, that this verse flies in the face of everything we sense, see, touch, feel, smell. See, that, that apple fritter that I ate from Donut Palace this morning Seemed very, very, very real. And it was good. But that seems so much more real than Jesus Christ sometimes. It's hard for us to get out of this mess of our thinking. And what Paul says to you is the reality of your situation. If you are a believer in Christ, he has made you alive and your position is so secure, you've already got your chair in heaven. That's your seat. Not in the green chairs here. This verse was instrumental for me. And so let me encourage you, if you're struggling, constantly being overwhelmed, you're feeling the accusations and the the raving, mad reverberations of the prince of the power of this air, of Satan. You can't get that a God loves you. Or that whatever you do next is going to be that final straw that pushes him over the edge and he's done with you. This section of Scripture flies in the face of those lies. God has seated you in heaven. That is your reality. Your reality is not the person that those girls at school say you are. Your reality is not the feeling of failure because you didn't. Make the sales quote of this month. Your reality is not the hopelessness you see. Your reality is a child of the King seated in the heavenlies. Now now here's the great part. I can't work in heaven. Right? I have no ability to do that. I can't influence what's going on up in my seat in heaven. I can't do bad things up there to ruin it. I can't spill The drink at the table, I'm not physically there. Your position is secure because your position does not depend on you. It's all about Jesus. He raised you up from the... Your part in this? Dead. That's your job. He raises you up from the grave. He seats you in the heavens. His part's good. He's got it. He's God. He can handle it. So rest secure in that. The last thing that this verse says is the why. I want to tell you a little story. But read with me verse 7. So in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let me read that again. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus. God is showing off in your life. God is the ultimate being. He is incredibly glorious, and his joy comes in sharing how glorious he is with you. Now, that may not sound that fun, and if it were any of you who wanted to show how glorious you were to me, I'm going to pass, right? Hard pass there, all right? Feeling a little sick, so y'all run, right? But God actually is that glorious. God is glorious. God. He is the ultimate being. And so his glory is really, really good. His glory is pleasant. His glory brings us joy. And so when God saves you, the dead guy, the dead lady, he's bringing glory to himself. God is showing off his glory in saving a person like you. So if you have that leering voice in your head coming again that tells you how bad you are. All you need to know is what a glorious God to save you. Second, God is showing off His glory and showing you grace. It's not that you earn it. You can't do it. You're dead. There's nothing you can do. God shows you grace. Grace. Make you alive. Third, God is showing His glory in His kindness to you. Check that verse one more time, verse seven. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Sometimes in our right theology, that God is big, and God is huge, and God is fully other, and God is powerful, and God is immense. We don't see God as kind. I love, love, love kids' prayer requests. They're so raw. And you get this wild mix of Somebody at school, because it's really hard to interpret what they're really saying, aunts, grandmas, somebody is sick, and they care and want to pray. But then you get these requests that are so genuine about this splinter that is so tiny. And I mean, they are so passionate about asking this request for this teeny, 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 tiny splinter that I, I really truly don't think it could possibly physically hurt. Like, I, I don't know that that's conceivably possible. And somewhere along the lines, we go from that to forgetting how kind God is. We got at one point that God cared even about that teeny, tiny splinter. And somehow, in the roughness of this world, we forget that God is kind. He saves us, and He doesn't just leave you out there floundering. We don't have the time to go into it, but He gives us so much, and He is with us, and His grace It's kind. It may not feel like the direction you want to go. God may say no to that sin that you love so much. That thing that seems so right, God says it's sin. No. He's very consistent. But that's a kindness, friend. It's a goodness to you. He loves you and wants good for you. He's kind. So God shows off His glory and kindness towards you. I want to tell you a little story, a little British literature for you. Wake your morning up, right? Two brilliant, brilliant authors... J.R.R. Tolkien, famous for The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, Uh, and a man named G.K. Chesterton, who not as many people know about, probably the best writer, the three folks I'm going to talk about. They were all professors at Oxford, and they would wander around the campus of Oxford, which is really the whole town. It's, It's a gorgeous, beautiful place. And there's this park, and they told about one day that they were walking they saw the crickets, the cricket matches going on. I had the great privilege of watching there, and it's just that. There's just this big field of guys playing cricket. And then the only place in the world outside of California where you can see giant sequoia, because the scientists in Oxford took them. And the climate is right. And so you get to walk through this grove of giant sequoias. It's like being in California at the National Park. And J.R. Tolkien and Chesterton talked with their friend who was an avid, devout atheist and kept telling him, the goodness of Christ is real. The goodness of Christ is everything. And they kept emphasizing to him this this goodness of Christ and, and that the world seems dark and off, but God will fix it. I said it over and over and over. Later that night, G.K. Chesterton gave this young man his newest book, manuscript form, handwritten. It's called The Everlasting Man. You can imagine who that might have been about, Jesus. It's an argument to win his friend to the Lord. His friend read that book, and then I want to read you what happened. He was in a motorcycle sidecar going to the grand opening of the new zoo, and he said this, I know very well when, but not how, the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. That young man was C.S. Lewis who later wrote this story to tell about what he learned in the Scripture. It was called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And these young men and two young ladies go into winter. And it's a winter with no Christmas ever. And it's ruled by the power of a queen, the white witch, who turns people to stone. And she leads people to treachery against the great king. But Aslan, the true king of Narnia, that had been long forgotten because of the darkness of the winter, breaks the power of winter and the evil queen and even death when he sacrifices himself as a substitute for this young man Peter, the traitor. He raises from the dead and Peter is set free. And where do he and his siblings end up in the story of Narnia? Do you remember? Seated on thrones. This is one of the passages that C.S. Lewis got and wanted to share with folks like me and you what this is like. We're daughters and sons of the king seated on royal thrones. We're heirs of the son of God. That's who we are. So today, we're going to pray. My call to you, my challenge to you. If you don't know Christ, turn to Him, please. We'd love to talk to you about that. But if you're a believer, here's, here's my call to you. Recognize who you were for just a moment. Dead. And then breathe in. The amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Rest well on your pillow tonight, Saint. You're seated in the heavenlies. Father, we thank You for this day. Your love, Your kindness. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for showing off by saving folks like me. Thank You for showing us grace that we didn't have to earn it because we can't. And thank You, thank You for being kind May we worship you, Jesus. May we praise you because we have been made alive in Christ and seated in the heavenly places. In Jesus, your name. Amen.